Brendan. Brendan's going to come up. This is going to also give you guys some space to think. So Brendan's going to give a, I guess, a little testimony. Is that what you would call it? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just a little marketing pitch for Alan because he's so incredibly humble that he wouldn't say this himself. And maybe, maybe a little testimony. But you know, years ago, my wife and I, uh, we were going through some stuff. And so we met with Alan to do some marriage counseling. And I cannot think of, I mean, it just works such wonders for our marriage um, that I cannot recommend it highly enough. Like if I had unlimited funds, I would just meet with him once a week because as you can see, he is, he's such a wealth of knowledge, but not just like a clinical knowledge, like going to some marriage counseling, but just like going through the Bible into the marriage, but also using um, like proven counseling like techniques and stuff it is just the if, if marriage is a picture of which it is of christ and his church right um and and i don't know about you guys but it's very hard if my marriage is not right at home doing anything else is very hard like work is not right like my everything's just off you know um so to invest the money and the time to make it right at home God, just the overflow that comes out of that, right? Like God, um, I think does a lot of stuff. It's, it's, it's tiring if you serve out of like an empty cup, right? But if you serve out of like an overflow of what God's doing, then I think it's just night and day and people can see that. I think that um, that starts in the home and in particular in, in our marriages. So I think just, I cannot speak highly enough about Allen and his his ministry really is what it is. It's like he is just an incredible, just amazing gift from God. What he does for marriages, like it's it's absolutely, um, you know, just <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, I said it earlier. I, I would literally go every week if I if I could just for just for anything because there's just so much that he can help with in any situation and. Um, yeah, so I just thank you, Alan, for, I know he's not in here right now, but um, yeah, my wife and I, um, yeah, it's just, it's just incredible. It's absolutely incredible what he does, and it's hard to describe, and we honestly didn't get it until we sat down with him and did it, because I could sit up here and like tell you and try to like say how much and how helpful he'll be no matter what state of your marriage is in, he can, it can get better. It definitely can get better. Um, and and it's, it's hard to like describe that if you, you just have to try it. You just have to trust me. You just have to like, you just have to like see how it's done. It's so different. Like I didn't grow up in the church. I don't know, even me, and we've met with pastors and like, they're awesome. What they do in counseling is like very great. This is another level. It's completely different. And it's, it's just absolutely incredible. Um, that being said, I'm going to hand it back to Clint. All right. Let's give Brendan a hand. All right. Arlen, do you want to come back up here? And um, I'll do the, uh, the microphone running around thing again. So, uh, by the way, let's welcome uh, Arlen's wife and uh, son. Yeah. Uh, Winnie and Alfred. Yeah. That's so thanks, right. thanks for being here. Um, and so uh, we've been blessed by, by your husband and father. Uh, it's been amazing uh, last, last night and today. So... Um, and I have a feeling there might be other rounds coming in the future. So, 
Um, all right, so who's got a question? Let's, who, who's going to start us off? We got something here. Our Asa, you were first up last night. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so Arlen, you talked about the different heart attitudes, the anger, fear, foolishness, and despair. Um, I was wondering where you felt like uh, like a prideful heart would fit in. Would that be under the foolishness category? And also if you could, I feel like I'm struggling a little bit with the distinction between the fear and the despair. If you could maybe elaborate on that a little more. Asa, hmm. thank you, Asa. That's such good questions. Um, think of it as in many cases very non-distinct categories that flow into one another but for the sake, for the sake of simplicity uh, uh, theologians who do this kind of work would try to differentiate them as best as they can uh, to begin with your first question, a heart of, of pride is directly, or that's why they use the word, by the way, predominant heart attitude. In other words, that's the one they think it falls best in. A heart of pride would be foolishness. Let me, let me elaborate even more. I want you to think of an orange, okay? Think of an orange that is sliced in half and the top part of the, um, the orange is pride. So think of the orange almost as though it's in the shape of a heart. It's, it's a heart. The top part of the orange is pride. And then the lower <clears throat> part of the orange is, let's see, um, pride on top and the lower part is unbelief. That's how theologians who do this kind of work, <clears throat> those who have studied psychologists also who are counselors, who believe in God's word, that's how they tend to see it. The heart has, first and foremost, spiritually speaking, in terms of the root issues, the root places where problems come from, it is mainly two compartments, the top and the lower one. Pride. A heart of pride and a heart of unbelief. Think about that. Don't forget that. Think pride being very predominant in terms of pride being the very reason why the devil was pushed from heaven. And the Bible actually says, woe to the earth to which he comes. And he comes down, one of the first things he did, as far as we know in the recorded in, in, in scripture, is he infuses the heart of man with pride. When God said, I am the Lord your God. He didn't say this in Genesis 1. He just said, do not eat of this fruit. For the day you eat it, you surely die. And he says to man, that's to the woman first, you will not die. In other words, he counters God's word. Think of authority and the authority's word. He counters it immediately and he says, no, you will be like God. She gets an idea. What's the idea? I want to be like God. You know where that idea first came from, by the way? I will make my throne my God's throne. I will be like God. Who first said that? In Scripture, Ezekiel. The devil, that's what he did in heaven. It's pride. It's based on pride. What Eve did was prideful as well as it was foolish. Because the very tasting of that fruit 
brought about our demise. So, a heart of pride is the first compartment you see above. And then there's a heart of unbelief that we struggle with every day. The heart of pride is broken down into two parts. Think of the heart of pride as, catch this, a heart that does what it wants, even when God says, don't do it. Behavioral issues. That you see, when people do certain behaviors, even when it's not good for their families. That's foolish, by the way, when they, when they do that. But they do it anyways. Why? Because it satisfies them. So we break down a heart of pride into two categories. A heart of foolishness. Okay? And a heart of anger. Because a lot of the behaviors that are done contrary to God's will is because people are angry, like in a marriage context, and they say what they want. Because they are angry. Or they are angry and they break things. And they do behaviors emanating from a heart of anger that are contrary to God's law. So a heart of pride is broken down into two, a heart of anger and a heart of foolishness. They go together very well. And there's a lot of scriptures for all these things I'm saying. Now, I don't want to elaborate too much on that, but do you get what I'm saying here, um, Asa? It's very related. You got it exactly right. Now, later we, talk, we can talk about the, the, the unbelief part, which is underneath, and I talked about this severally, but um, that's the first question. What was the second question again, please? Just a little bit more clarity on the distinction between despair and fear. A little bit more clarity on the distinction between despair and fear. All right, so I have to talk about the other part of the orange now, anyways. So, the bottom part. Man, that question was so loaded. You have to thank him for that, by the way. Thank God. So, on the bottom part of the heart, or the orange, is a heart of unbelief. What's unbelief? It's just acting in ways that go contrary to faith. And having, before you act like that, you first have had a kind of sense in your heart that, you know what, I think I can help myself better. I think I don't believe what is said about me. I think this feeling that I am um, harboring of fear, for example, though God's word says don't fear, I think I, it's justified. You know, I should fear. Why, why shouldn't I fear? I mean, I, I should fear people. I should fear things like this. And it enters the unhealthy zones of fear. That's a heart of fear that emanates from a heart of unbelief. The category of unbelief is broken down into two parts. One part is called a heart of fear. That's where anxieties come from. That's where we refuse to do what God is saying because we are afraid for our lives. He says, go. He says, no, I will not because God, can't you see? It's dangerous for me. Or he says, um, uh, invest or support or you say no can't you see that I don't have enough we are anxious we are afraid because we refuse to believe God's word about provision we refuse to believe God's word about protection we refuse to believe what God has said about that thing that's why we keep on being afraid that's a heart of fear but a heart of despair on the, is the other half of the unbelief portion right so fear and despair despair is when you are hopeless no, was God saying, there is hope. I will lift you up. I will take you there. He said, no, I don't believe it. I go by my sights more than by my faith. 
I am in despair because I see no way forward. You see, that is also part of unbelief. You are not believing what God says about the hope he has provided. You are saying, I, can, I know how to handle this better. My body is going this direction. I will follow how my body is going. Now, notice, ladies and gentlemen, I am not saying for every depression, it is because you have unbelief. The kind of work I do is called clinically informed biblical counseling, which means it's based on clinical research. And we learn about it, we read about it, we, 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 we imbibe what we learn into our practice. But our practice is fundamentally biblical, which means even what we read about in psychological research, if it doesn't line up with the scriptures, what do we do? It's out. Because even if the wisest men in the world do research and they tell us something that's contrary to God's word, we know it's foolishness. Why? Because we have an all-wise God and we believe in his word 100%. So research should only line up with God's word. Now there are times when some research seems to be ahead of God's word. <laughs> Let me tell you, the things God has talked about in his word, if they are there, we, sh we should believe those things more than research. Now, we may not understand. That's why we give ourselves to studying God's Word, to learning from God through prayer, and asking God to explain to us what does this mean so that His Spirit can now elucidate or bring to light what the revelation is in His Word pertaining to that thing that may look contrary in the world as far as the research findings than what the Word of God is telling us. We are believers in God's Word through and through. We'll die for it before we understand it. That's the point. In other words, you believe not because you see. You believe because he that has said it is more faithful and is more knowledgeable than everyone else. You have to believe that. Hold on to God's word more than the research. You see, I'll add this little thing to it. When I was studying, doing my dissertation, right, I was supposed to be the foremost, world's foremost expert in that little thing that I found. What was my thing? My thing was studying the effect of shame. I broke down shame into two, shame traits and shame proneness in people, all right? In the sub, on the subject of pornography use, why do people who feel ashamed because their values, their religion, their faith doesn't allow them to go to these sites, continue to go to these sites? Is there an aspect of the shame variable that we need to understand as to a, an ingredient that propels them or compels them to keep going? That's it. There's research that already shows that negative emotions such as guilt and shame have a way to contribute the perpetuation of bad behavior. So I went into shame. These are research things. I don't want to go too much into that. But this is the thing. I spent years studying shame and shame proneness and trait shame. And, and I realized they gave me a PhD for that, right? But when I truly look into what I know, I realize, oh my God, academics could be, could be a scam in some ways. Because they think I know a lot, whereas I now know what I don't know. There's a lot that I don't know about shame. That's how the scholars of the world are. They would purport to know a lot, and they will show you research here and there, but believe me, God's knowledge and wisdom is way higher. So don't depend on those things you read in books so much, especially when they contradict the scriptures. To the subject, remember, what you just asked is that a summary of what the DSM is all about, the Diagnostic Manual of Mental Disorders, 
that we use in psychology. It's really about behavior and emotions. Behavior in the psychological manuals is the pride piece, the, top, the up part of the orange. Behaviors. Compulsive behaviors, which are foolish behaviors, like addictions, and disruptive behaviors. Children who are disruptive, for example. People that like to fight because they have anger issues. You see that? And when you see that, just remember this principle. It's pride for the most part. Then on the, underneath, in the DSM, you see emotions. This is the bottom part of the orange. Unbelief, a heart of despair, and a heart of fear. We see a heart of despair and a heart of fear. It's literally telling you that is the emotions, such as you know, um, depressive, emo depressive emotions and anxiety-related emotions. And they give you all kinds of diagnoses about that. It's the same thing. But the world has knowledge which is limited. Oh, I like light. Woo, praise God. It was getting dark in here. So, so, good question, but there's a lot to talk about on these subjects, and we can talk about it some more, maybe at a different time. But thank you again, Lisa. Oh, that is. <laughs> that's why so much <laughs> um, I had a question since ooh, that's um, so talking about the heart attitudes it seems like under each each one there is some kind of layer or could be some kind of layer of unbelief and so I was curious on the um, the, the heart of anger is mm -hmm. there what you, you were kind of pointing out like some kind of unbelief towards whether it was God's promises or what God said about this or his protection. So I was just curious, under, under the heart of anger, is there also um, a specific kind of unbelief that you might be geared towards? That's a good question, Missy. Let me move it for you a little bit. Think of anger as falling on the top part of the orange, okay? The heart of anger would fall under pride. How many times have you seen people act in anger because they feel like... By the way, why do you think people often get angry? What's the main reason? Any, any takers? They don't get what they want? Good. Huh? They feel offended? Yes? Huh? They've been wronged? Take note of that answer too. What else? They feel unsafe? Okay. Mm -hmm. Any more? I'm looking for a certain word. Okay, well, I'm coming to that. Yeah, you're going to cheap, cheap one. Come on. Good. People, when they perceive that an injustice has been done, get angry. I don't deserve what you did. They don't deserve what you did to them. Therefore, I'll fight for them. I'll protect them. I'll fight for myself and protect myself. I'll defend myself when injustice is being perceived by a person. They get angry, especially if they perceive an action as being unjust toward them. Now, notice what the normal Christian life is all about. The normal Christian life is. What, is, what does the Bible say about turning a cheek? When you struck one, you turn the other. When someone seizes your cloak or your, your cloak, you give them your shirt as well or something. You know, scriptures about just selflessly living in this world for God. There are a lot of things that we do in anger because we perceive that injustice has been done, but we do it the wrong way. We don't go the way of humility. Like when Christ was struck, he did nothing, all of that. We believe that we should fight back in ways that are ungodly. I'm not saying every time we defend ourselves is wrong. I'm saying 
a lot of the ang a lot of the things we do as far as trying to defend ourselves because we perceive that injustice has been perpetrated against us is from a heart that is angry because it feels like I will not let you do this to me. I will fight back. I will show you who is the boss. Hey, I have a friend who used to, who used to do martial arts. At least he used to tell us he'd done martial arts. You know, kids who, who pretend they've done martial arts when they've not done martial arts. So I had one of these friends who were like, man, I've done taekwondo. And every time he, you did anything to him, you were like, I'll, I'll teach you a lesson. But he never really fought. So he just had this thing about, you know, I fight back. I will show you that I'm strong. I'm a black belt. That's how many of us are. God says, no, don't, don't be like that. When you are angry, don't show them how strong you are, how wonderful you are. Let me fight for you. But in our pride, through a heart of anger, we tend to do things to vindicate ourselves. In our marriages, we do it. With our children, we do it. In our workplaces, we do it. We are doing that because of our pride. So, to Mrs. question again, it is underlying Underlying a heart, of, a heart of pride, we have anger issues sometimes. And when they show up, we must catch it and say, this is pride. And my pride wanting me to fight this way. It's my pride wanting me to defend myself this way. So it's under a heart of pride. And, Missy, one last point before I end your, your question. Think of the heart of pride as having two categories. What are the two categories of pride? Foolishness and Foolishness and anger, right? So, heart of pride, heart of um, um, the big category of pride, anger being a main category of it, if anger, if anger has to be represented, we have to look at it through a clinical perspective. Think of things like people that act compulsively. They cannot control themselves. And they do like disruptive behaviors. You see that in kids. Now, they don't call it a heart of anger in the secular world, but we call it a heart of anger because it's truly a prideful thing. It's, it comes from the pride category, and we need to address it for what it is. Amen? So, but thank you for, that, for asking that. Hey, Alan, thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, you know, a couple, a little bit ago, you talked about that example in an airport of a mm -hmm. mother with her child who mm -hmm. was just you know, losing it, and uh, how the mother responded not in the right way. How would, how should, in that scenario, how should she have responded? All right. Um, I think we talked, we actually talked about it on that very slide. Let me go back to it. Catch this. Notice this about that mother, okay? For those of you, I think everyone was here. That mother, after she tried everything she could, she resorted to not just, I mean, to emotionalism, shaming the child so that she would get what she wanted. And I said, punitive correction, such as hitting, yelling like she did, or grounding sometimes to keep the child under control through the negative experience of punishment, does not require an ongoing interaction or discussion. That's your answer. There is a need to intentionally interact and discuss. However, there are emergencies where you don't have it. There's no way to, to do it at that time. See that? So, I would not be too quick to say an emergency 
response will be necessary, but I don't know that that would be the one I would choose if I'm doing right. For example, what are the other options she had? I want us to interact here. What do you think she could have done outside of just conversing or going the other way of shaming and shouting and, and abandoning the child? What other middle ways are which are more urgent that would be acceptable for that time? I want to hear your thoughts. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. That's great. That's great. What's that? Yes, yeah, trying that. What would be the goal of that? That's a really great point, by the way. Can, can, can you give me a mic, please, if you don't mind? Um, repeat what you just said. I want you to be loud enough. Hear what you said. I think removing the child out of the current location it's in, whether it's like at the, you know, whatever, by the airport gate, taking uh-huh. it aside to a quieter spot for the two of you to have a conversation or try to okay for them to have a conversation that's what i was asking like the next thing would be the goal of removing the child from that place would be one to maybe find a better more suitable place to have that conversation even if it's just a brief conversation because sometimes you're rushing right you have to go through security but you brief conversation that's one reason what other reasons would can anyone or you think of any other reasons why it would be a good idea to use that option of removing the child? In other words, going with the child, not abandoning, but going with the child to another place. Removing, the, removing this like, external stimuli and then having it just be the two of you. I don't know, that's all I'm thinking. So, removing with the external stimuli. You have to, you have to say it confidently because you're saying some good things. Removing Very good. You see that? Please, these are very subtle things, but yeah, we have to say them. You are not, you're going, because see, this man is able to report it in his book. Why? Because she exposed the child, and she shamed the child in public in ways that could remain with the child for a long time to come. Maybe they would read this book, and they would know that, oh, it's us they're talking about. You see that? That's possible. So that's a good idea. Removing the child and maybe having the conversation, but not only removing the child because you want to have a conversation, removing the child to remove them from the potential shame or shaming that that interaction caused. It's great. Thank you. Okay. Everyone needs to speak. I need more, more new people to speak. So go ahead, brother. So maybe question in the context of as parents, we bring our own baggage and history of our childhoods to it. So okay. When we think about intervention, can you comment on maybe two dimensions? How do we as parents think about the intensity of the engagement around something that might be not positive and then the timing of addressing it? Huh, you have to break down that question. So, come again. So, so when, a, when, a ch- when it's evident that a child is being disruptive, okay. it is you know, demonstrating one of the hearts, mm-hmm. How do you as a parent, how should we think about at the timing of addressing it? So by timing meaning, do we address it in the moment? Do we mm. let it take, you know, do we let it simmer for a bit and re-raise it later when there is a kind of de-escalation from an emotive perspective? So that's kind mm. of the timing piece. Mm, okay. And then the, the intensity piece of, you know, how much attention do we need to draw to it, draw with the child? 
So uh -huh. it can be a kind of mild, brief discussion that mm -hmm. seems somewhat inconsequential, or it can be something that, you know, they perceive a sermon as occurring on God's <laughs> word, of which they don't have a lot of time for, yeah. attention span. Yeah. Well, thank you, brother. That's a great question. By the way, thank you for the lights. I hear you, you worked in the lights, and we have light now. Um, what he's asking, I think, goes straight to the heart of what I said at the very beginning of our session today. What was it? That God first wants your heart. Proverbs 23, right? Your heart first. Not 23, Proverbs. It's 23, we read the first verse we read. 23, uh, 4, 24, I think. Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart. So before you parent properly, your own heart must be guarded. Because God is going to be dealing with your heart first and dealing with your understanding of Him before you become His agent, like we said, right? So, it depends on the parent's perception of the intensity of the problem. But some parents would see something. Have you seen these situations where a child is behaving poorly in public and you're thinking you're really like steaming inside, right? Can the parent do something about that? And the parent may be sitting there and just chatting with the friends and like, oh, it's all right. Two different parental perspectives, right? They're like, it's okay. The kid is okay. They all say, no, he's disrupting a public, you know, meeting or something. So the person and their walk with the Lord and their understanding of God's expectations in the Word of God about a child's behaviors would determine whether or not they handle it immediately or later or the intensity of the address or the intervention. So I think it's subjective because for some parents, one month's meat would be another month's poison. They might even want their kids to interact like that. And you're saying they deserve to be like put on timeout or something. And they're saying, no, I actually want my kid to do that. So uh, you see what I mean? Like I can't really see there's a fixed answer to that. But there are some obvious things that are sinful behaviors that you want to really especially if I have the time to cover some of my material for, second, for the second half. If I don't, it's in the book. You can see some of them in the book if you get the book. Again, I don't get anything from the book. They don't know who I am. I don't know, I don't know who they are, but I just think it's a good book. Um, you know, uh, Shepherding the Heart of a Child by Ted Tripp. It's a good book. Um, so when it comes to uh, older kids, like kids that are teenagers in their teenage years, I think... Depending on, again, how you perceive things, you might need to spend more time with them and make sure that you're not lecturing, but just passing on, like, you know, um, good information regarding a situation that happened and modeling it for them uh, because you really want to make sure you're following your conviction because that's how the Lord would, that's how you'll be judged, right? Based on whether you knew it was wrong or right, based on whether or not you, uh, I'm thinking about the judgment seat of Christ, not the judgment for eternal destruction. We who are in Christ have passed from life to death. But the Bible does say that we as believers will be judged and rewarded for our actions. One of the actions we'll be judged and rewarded for would be our parenting of our children. So if you are convinced that a way of parenting a teenager or a toddler is the way it should be, then that's what you know, right? Now go with the flow and do it the best you can. Always remember the principle of going for the heart, not the change of the behavior. That's all I'll say. Yes. 
mentioned earlier um, an example of two siblings fighting over the same toy. One second. That's a, how old is your baby, by the way? Two months. Oh, praise God. Do we, do we have the, that's the youngest attend, attendee of this conference. <laughs> Let's clap for him. What's his name? Caleb. James? Caleb. Caleb, okay. Yeah, Caleb, welcome. That's good. It's a parenting conference and we have to acknowledge children, right? I like to, thank you for coming. For thank coming. You. What's your name, please? Karen. Karen, okay. Go ahead with your question. Okay. So he has two sisters, three-year-old and a five-year-old. Okay. So the sibling rival rivalry is every half hour, I think. <laughs> so you mentioned that the child or the siblings is always watching you discipline how you discipline the other child. So I'm very conflicted all the time because I know the youngest one is watching, but she also, her brain development is not really fully developed. Obviously, she's, she's, she's very impulsive. So she's always um, wanting to take the older child's toy. So I just, um, if you could give me like practical <laughs> advice on how to handle or how, what is the, correct way without um, reinforcing selfishness and um, yeah, I'm just I'm very conflicted in how to handle that situation. Uh, without reinforcing selfishness? Uh -huh. In the child being disciplined? In or? the younger one always wanting oh, oh, and you, what you the other asked, child yeah, wants. Yeah, good. <laughs> hmm. My wife is here, so I'll say something about her <laughs> related to that. Then I'll make the point. Maybe I'll make the point first and I'll say something to reinforce the point. I think it's a very difficult thing to do, especially because the other one too is still developing, right? Everything is really... <laughs> so what do you do? Maybe we can apply her principle. We can move the child away, right? That we're able to talk to the child alone and we'll bring the child back. Um... Or we could seize the opportunity to parent both of them at the same time, even though you know the one whose fault it is, um, without result, resulting in maybe lecturing or preaching a whole sermon to two-year-olds. Um, I think you just simplify something and you can t try to target both of them at the same time. My wife has accused me, and rightly so, of sometimes when I'm trying to correct one person, <laughs> I say it to the hearing of other people because I'm actually trying to also address their own issues through this way. <laughs> I mean, she's pushed it so far sometimes. She's told me, she said, were you trying to talk to me? Are you saying it to the kid? Anyway, I have that weakness sometimes and I get so upset. I'm like, okay, I wish my wife could also hear this so that, you know, no, I'm, I'm just, the unholy, imperfect parent. I'm sure some of you guys are perfect in your thing. But my point in saying that is just to say that that tactic can also work sometimes. you addressing one, but you want the other one to actually hear and know that. Next time you try to do the selfish thing, it's your problem. I'm going to deal with you too. But you can also isolate and talk to them individually. And by the way, I do that in marriage counseling. There are times when a couple are just fighting. They just cannot stop. And they come into counseling and they start fighting again. So what I do is I try to separate and isolate them and talk to them on Zoom. I'm mostly doing it on Zoom these days. And I would talk to them individually. It's like parenting uh, adults in some ways. 
And so uh, the ones I can do to both of them at the same time, I do it. <laughs> the ones I have to do, the times I have to do it separately, I do it. Did that help, Karen? Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. Good question. It's, yeah, along those lines, we obviously have a two, almost three-year-old. So in those young, young years. You'll have two now, right? Two kids, We have right? two now, yes. Pastor John told me, yay. Yes. I remember when you were single. Pastor John. It's so crazy. Praise God. A lot has happened. Um, yeah. So in the young years of a child's life, how do you balance? Because it's like, how much can they really understand about, I mean, you know, a toddler, how much they understand about their heart and their motives and their, you know, so it's like, how do you balance, like, going to the heart of a child, but still also like implementing rules. Like I feel like right now we're just at this like very simplified approach of like, what are, what's your rules? Did you hit your sister? You're not supposed to hit, no hitting. So it's very behavior, but learning about like going to the heart, going to the root um, of the fruit. So like, how do you navigate that in the young years? And do you just have to kind of get through it? And then you just build it as they get older and like, as they understand more and more. Yeah. Because they're just, they're, you know, their minds are just so simple at this stage. So, yeah. but you obviously like, don't want them to like run rampant too, you know, just because you're <laughs> waiting to address their heart. <laughs> so how do you balance? Man, um, I think there's something about the word of God that we need to remember. It's life and it's spirit. The word is actually able to mold little hearts, even when they don't understand cognitively what you're saying. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they're life and they're spirit. The word has a way of washing and molding, even when, you know, um, uh, the kid may not be able to comprehend intellectually what you're saying. So you use the word a lot as you, as you, as you parent. Um, notice the principle we established at the very beginning of our first session of communicating frequently and using the rod alongside or disciplining alongside. So communicating the word, and the word is spirit and is life. Scripture says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to convict, to break. Let me read, hear what Hebrews 4.12 says. And then be confident that the word can be spoken to them even when they're in the womb, by the way. You can actually speak to your baby in the womb. God's word is able to penetrate skin and flesh and bone. And, and muscle and enter into the spirit because babies have spirits and the word is spirit when you speak it when you believe it and you declare it over them and and you just sometimes see the fruit sometimes you may not see the fruit of your declarations but you can do it by faith knowing that it's God's word and uh, you don't want to let it run rampant especially on the spiritual side keep molding uh, Hebrews 4:12 says this it says it says mm. for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts that's where you're trying to go the thoughts and the intentions of the heart see the the heart is where you're trying to go use the word because only the word can do the work of going deep when they're young when their brains are not fully developed 
It takes about 28 years for the brains to fully develop, especially the frontal lobes of the brain of a child. So even when you think that they're developed fully, they're not until they're about age 28. So do everything you can to speak the word when they're young and correct with the word and explain by the word and trust that the Spirit of God will write on God's word and bring about the desired change of heart. All right, I think we're, uh, we're getting closer down on time, but I did want to ask, did, did you want to bring your son up? Um, okay. We have we're probably about five minutes. Uh, sure. Um, so if that works, want to honor that. Yes, please. Um, one of the things, before he comes up, I want to say real quickly about raising teenagers is, um, get to the part of my note here, is this, just to set it up properly. When you are trying to train your teenager, or let's say you've already trained them, hopefully, until a certain age, remember that there are training procedures that you use, okay? Training procedures. And there are four that I want to highlight real quickly. Addressing the heart of a situation with a teenager. In other words, addressing the when and what and why is really key for them because they are already intellectually developed to a point where they can understand, can have conversations. Um, it's so key that you do that, appealing to the conscience, what is right, and get to the very root issues and, and, and sinfulness of their heart is really important because their consciences are developed and strong. Okay, so I do that with my son sometimes, and that's important. And developing character with them is the third thing here. You know, living consistently with who God is and who I am. You have to make sure that's going on. And then finally, daily, you know, uh, making sure that the Word of God is around them in some ways. That will help a lot when you are training teenagers. I have tried to do some of that with my son. My wife is here as witness, but we've not done it perfectly. He happens to be one of the kids who also is in track, is in athletics. So there are some things in the book that I would have talked about that have to do with you now deciding whether or not church can be taking, you can take absence from church sometimes just to attend. He's gone to two track internationals events for his high school, you know, and now in college trying to, he might be joining the team, we'll see. But it's really, really interesting to see how the Lord has helped us, even when we failed. And I want him just to, to see his own experience. Not to try to prop me up and make me feel good. That's not the goal. Just like we did. Brandon, Brandon asked me yesterday if he could say something. Like, yeah, I wish I could say something about counseling. And I'm like, okay, say something. But so I want you to know, I'm not trying to promote myself in any way. What I'm trying to do is to try to see how God's grace works. And our kid is one who has been with us since he was born. And I believe that uh, he might say a few things that can encourage those who have teenage children or those who have kids who someday will be teenagers. And to know that God, as the idea, God is able. And God is with us as we parent. And God will help us. So come up, Alfred. Um, Alfred is, um, is, is, is a cyber security, cyber security major at Liberty University. And he's our first child. He's 18 years old. Take it away. Mm. Good afternoon. I remember 
this was last night. My father was telling me about how he was coming to speak at a parenting conference, and he was talking to me about the fruit to root model and the shepherding a child's heart through the word of God. I was thinking, this sounds a lot like a product. And what do you need with a product? You need a product review. Luckily, <laughs> luckily, I've been a test dummy for this product for the past 18 years, so I feel like I'm qualified to tell you about how it affected my life and the life of my siblings. So, teenage years, about 13 to 19, your brain is still developing, and these are very crucial moments of your life. Unfortunately, though, they're marred by intense insecurities and anxieties, right? You're too young to do things for young children, but you're, you're too young to do things for older adults, but you're too old to do things for younger children. Not only are you marred by anxieties, you're also marred by rebellion. You're trying to find yourself. You're trying to find your identity outside your parents, which leads to rebellion from parents. Now, how did my parents respond to my teenage years? They used two main tactics, I think. The first tactic was instilling an adherence to parental instruction. How did they go about this? Well, they started off not very well, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I ignore the calm demeanor I have now, but when I was younger, I was, some people thought I was possessed, right? I'd be fighting kids, I'd be arguing, I would get into all sorts of trouble. And my parents would, of course, discipline me, right? And it got to a point where I would stop doing those bad things. I would modify my behavior, but not because I thought they were bad, but because out of fear of my parents. It's certainly not the best place, but it is a good place to start. It changed the behavior at the time. But then as I got older, I'm like, mom, dad, why do you keep disciplining me? Why do I keep getting whooped? And then they sat me down and explained, it wasn't because they didn't like me or they thought it was annoying. It's because they loved me and they wanted the best out of me. So my mindset shifted yet again. I shifted from a fear of my parents to more of a respect of my parents. No, I was gonna do well in school, not because I didn't wanna get whooped, but because I wanted to honor my parents. This is a great way of parenting, but Great and good are the enemy of perfect. And it was finally up until later. My sister was born, and she started going through the same things I went through. She'd get whooped, she'd get disciplined after disobeying. And then she asked my parents, Mom, Dad, why do you keep disciplining me? And luckily at that point, my parents had grown in their parenting style, and they hit the right answer. They said, we discipline you because at the end of our lives, you have to give an account to God on how we raised you. It went beyond, oh, I don't want to get whooped, or oh, I respect my parents. I obey my parents, I adhere to their instruction because of a deep reverence and fear of God. Which leads to the next tactic they used to try and shepherd us in a godly way. They instilled the adherence to parental instruction, but they also instilled the fear of God. How did they do that? Two main ways. Through family worship and through distancing us from wickedness. Now, obviously we live in a sinful world, right? You can't escape that. But my parents did try and escape that. They tried to nurture us. They tried to keep us away from bad friends. Be it every time I came home with a girl's number, my mom would do an FBI background check on them. <laughs> or my father constantly asking me, Alfred, what are these friends doing? What do they want from you? How are they gonna lead you? Are they gonna lead you towards God or away from God? I saw this in every aspect of my life. And I think it benefited me for the most part. The only downside I'd say is that when you try and distance yourself from wickedness a lot, you end up ignoring the Great Commission. I was very focused when I was younger on having godly friends, being around good people that are gonna sharpen me. Iron sharpens iron, right?
but then I ignore the calling of God to go to unbelievers, to love them, show them the love of Christ, and bring them to God and witness to them. That's something I had to learn later on, that yes, my closest friends should be followers of God, but I still should have people that I'm influencing who aren't necessarily believers. That was the first tactic they used. But the one that impacted me the most, I'd say, and the final one, is family worship, right? So, in our household, almost every evening, we sing and we praise God, right? Even if we don't do it for a long time, we try and end our day by focusing on God. But that's just one aspect of worship. And as I continuously got older, I noticed that my parents really implemented worship in everything. From the schools I went to, from the churches we attended, from the lessons I learned, from uprooting our lives to go to Canada because we felt called by God, right? We set aside our desires, set aside what we wanted for our lives, and gave it to God, which is the ultimate act of worship. But unfortunately, while they were doing this in my heart, my heart wasn't always surrendered to God in worship. Like my father mentioned, I'm a track athlete by training, and so is my grandfather. So in my family, it was very common for people to tell me, Alfred, you have the athletic genes. Alfred, you're gonna do great things. Alfred, you have to use this talent to the glory of God. But I ended up worshiping that talent instead of the person who gave it to me and creating an idol in my heart. Now, this stayed for a long time, and although my parents, they were showing me godly ways to worship God, to sacrifice your talents for God, in my mind, I didn't consider that at all. Until one fateful day, I got injured. And this wasn't an ordinary injury. It was a shin splits, right? But it progressively got worse, until the point I couldn't even walk, much less run. And these six months while I was injured were some of the darkest days of my life. I had lost the thing I idolized so much, my running. I lost the thing that I worshiped. And it was in that point where God met me. I had been saved beforehand, but it was only really then God called me out for my lip service to him. I would say I was a Christian. I would say that I loved God and I worshiped God. But in my heart, I really worshiped my athletic prowess. And during those six months, I really saw God's growth, right? My parents planted the seed and they ended up watering, but without that interaction with God, no growth would have come of it. So I can attest to you that parents can do everything perfectly, they can follow this model to a T, but if you don't have your own unique interaction with God, if your child doesn't meet God themselves, nothing's going to happen. But luckily I had parents who planted God's word, who watered it, who did their best to shepherd me in a godly way, and I met a God who ended up capitalizing on that. And changing me to the man I am today. So, overall review, I'd say five out of five stars. <laughs> we'll definitely come again. And I'm very grateful for our godly heritage. Thank you so much. All right, parents, so um, I know you're, you're all sitting there thinking, man, um, like I have an eight-year-old in 10 years, if my eight-year-old can stand up here and say those kinds of things about Missy and I, gosh, I will just break down and cry. Um, I'm about to cry right now, but I will try that, not to. That, that was awesome. You know, praise God. So I, I just wanted you at least to know, like I started, this is not about us. We're not a 